Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries and constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com. And this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gill at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Robin Chaston, who's Professor and Editor in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Connecticut and part-time research professor with the Tropical Forest and People Research Center at the University of the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia. Her long-term and ongoing collaborative research focuses on success, uh, successional pathways, forest regeneration, and ecosystem services provided by forests. Welcome, Robin. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to uh, sort of start with the 2020 paper to set the context for our conversation. Uh, creating a culture of caretaking through restoring ecosystems and landscapes. You stay here, restoration thinking provides a new paradigm for charting a bold future that prevents for the loss of biodiversity and habitat destruction, avoids catastrophic climate change, and promotes the well-being and safety of all people. Ten paths, you say, guide actions to restore and care for Earth uh, and all its living creatures. So what are some of the most important paths that we can take here for this objective? Well, I think um, the first path really is about the mindset and how we need to understand the importance of restoration and what that means, because it's not only about restoring properties of, of ecosystems, but it's also about restoring a relationship between humans and human societies and, and our natural world. Uh, so that, I think, is sort of one of the foundational steps that we need to take. And understanding how restoration can become aligned with many different goals that we have, including uh, goals like uh, for sustainable development, goals for um, mitigating climate change, goals for protecting biodiversity, goals for um, for um, equality of, of people and protecting indigenous rights. So all of those can be kind of accomplished through a set of interventions that we call restoration or restoration um, at the scale of landscapes, where restoration where people are living, where communities are, as well as in more remote areas. So that leads to the second major set of steps, which are about engaging the local communities. They have to be a part of whatever processes are being undertaken to both improve um, environmental factors that uh, reducing flooding, uh, reducing fires, improving soil quality, uh, protecting biodiversity, and um, encouraging better, more appropriate land use. Um, these are are critical decisions that local people need to be engaged in, and they need to receive benefits directly and indirectly from from whatever restoration activities are taking place. Um, 
so then the third major set of steps has to do with how we keep track, how how we actually assess what is what are the outcomes of the interventions and measuring uh, performance and understanding how we can get more outcomes with you know less financial investment, perhaps, um, and over a larger area. Uh, and the final one is really shifting um, practices away from sort of the mentality of offsetting, what mm. is um, after after the fact, after there's already been some destruction, let's see what we can do to kind of patch it up by improving conditions somewhere else. That should be the last resort. The first resort is avoiding damage in the first place. So uh, we don't have to try to do restoring later, which never really uh, gets us back to where the original uh, ecosystems were. And also aligning the policies and incentives. That is really working toward a more holistic um, set of practices that are achieving multiple goals all through mm -hmm. the same activities. Yeah, so that, that's really important. So, you know, for for general public and for a person like myself, conservation is quite understandable. Um, restoration brings in a lot of complications uh, because you take a status quo system, there is a lot of nonlinearity in them, there are winners and losers. Um, you know, so if you sort of intervene, on that system um, in the status quo, then you know it, it becomes very difficult to really, uh, really define what the what the net economic gain is from that. Right? Sometimes, I mean, sometimes it's quite obvious, but many times it's uh, somewhat marginal. I would think. Yeah, and I think where where we want to be is in a situation where. Um, these practices, which include both avoiding damage and appropriate ways of mitigating damage and recovering from damage, all they should become part of a new way of thinking, which is, you know, it's a no-brainer. Like we don't really have to question why we should be doing these things because they make so much sense. Um, and they make sense from the long-term perspective. They may go against the more prevailing uh, systems, which are maximizing short-term profits um, and um, accumulating wealth and all of the <laughs> sort of policies that we have now that really have created a lot of the inequities and a lot of the environmental problems that we're facing. So to reverse those, we really need to kind of go to the core of what's been driving those processes. That's really what this paper is about. Not about you know piecemeal actions that we can take, but really about reconstructing the whole way we think about about um, environment and human well-being, um, so that we prevent further damage and do an, a good job of recovering. Um, and instead of getting mired further and further into problems. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So the way that you think about this is conservation and restoration are complementary policy uh, effects. And the goal here is to sort of optimize them with some certain, certain parameters. Obviously, there's a localization of this in um, in different. I mean, I, I grew up in South India, which is <laughs> almost tropic uh, tropical area, um, but the, the world is very diverse. Um, their economics are quite different. Developing countries are, are very quite different from developed countries, and so there's a global question of optimization, right? Which is probably a little easier to solve than the lo local optimization questions. So how, how do you how do you go into this problem? Well, I the the tool that is I think most useful is what we would call spatial prioritization. And it basically looks at um whatever region, whatever scale you're considering. It can be done locally, it can be done 
you know, in a larger scale, like municipality or other sub-geographic subdivision or jurisdiction, or it could be done at a national scale as well, um, incorporating you know, a, a wide range of conditions. And you first have to sort of set what is the optimization criteria and determine you know what what your objectives are and that's where you need to have broad consultation if you know you're not always going to get the same list of priorities um so there needs to be that that first step of of understanding what the priorities are at that level is really based on consensus and collaboration but once you've decided that, for example, um, you know, maximizing, uh, let's say you want to restore 30% 30 30 of uh, deforested or degraded ecosystems, um, and you want to protect what are the remaining ecosystems. So you, you use the maps for the region to determine what's, what areas are already protected, and then you decide where should my priority areas be for restoring, given that you're not going to try to restore everywhere. So you want to try to maximize certain qualities or minimize cost. That may be an important factor. Or you may want to maximize areas where you know there is threatened biodiversity and where restoration in those particular areas is really going to have a, a positive impact and protect species from extinction. Or you might want to prioritize where the most carbon can be stored or where we can protect, um, you know, steep slopes to prevent erosion or flooding. So those are things that could be mapped. And then you, there are actually um, algorithms that you can use to kind of take multiple factors and look at where can I kind of maximize or optimize, given that you're not going to get 100% of all those things everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's kind of a compromise approach, but on the other hand, it also allows you to achieve multiple benefits so that you're not just seeing benefits from one perspective or from one stakeholder's point of view, but you're you're kind of you're solving a complex problem by mm. realizing you can't do everything everywhere. And you're gonna try to do your best. Yeah, I really like that. So I I, I haven't really thought about this. So, you know, my inclination would be to look at the system and say here here are the or here's the objective function you know you figure out where the so for instance you know you go to the tropics um and, and that's where a lot of the energy is coming in from the sun you so if you want to get to some state for the system that's where you're going to get the maximum bang for the buck so to speak um, but then that's not the way to really think about it right i mean there, there are local needs uh, for countries and regions, and and uh, all of them are quite different in many ways. Absolutely. In fact, we there have been uh, global scale sort of spatial prioritization analyses done in the last few years. I participated in such an effort um, that was led by Bernardo Strasberg and, and many other people, and we were able to show like where restoration would achieve the most carbon gain and the most biodiversity protection but that um, and of course the tropics come out as you know certain regions of the tropics came out on top the highest priority areas but you know um we didn't include how are farmers going to get their income as part of this optimization so there were many people there were some commentaries that came out after that and it, it really sparked a lot of important discussion um it's hard to incorporate everything and even harder when a lot of this is going to depend on government policies hmm. that are then using this information to say okay well if we are really going to try to restore in some of these areas how do we best engage the local people to do this? And how can we provide really good livelihoods for these people that may even be better than what they're doing now that will at the same time um, be part of a restoration effort? And it is possible to do this. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, if we put our brains together and put our resources together, it could be done. It's just, you know, not, the biggest problem on a lot of uh, policymakers' lists of of things to do, and the, these are complex 
problems that really need multifaceted input and it maybe even need some pilot projects done in a smaller area to see, you know, how could we make this work? Could we have local communities um, engaged in growing seedlings and marketing seedlings and processing fertilizer and, you know, making products for uh, restoration projects so that they're also part of, you know, it sort of becomes an industry um, that they are gaining economically from. Or, you know, could they be, we be growing certain crops and certain trees in combination in agroforestry in a restoration project so that there's also food security built in. So a lot of these things are being done on small scales, but what we need is broad government support and, you know, um, not more than support, um, really buying in to the, this whole approach. And once that happens, uh, you begin to see a lot more change on the ground. Yeah, I mean, clearly it doesn't get politicians elected um, uh, because it has long-term societal effects and that's not something politicians typically, <laughs> typically worry about. Uh, there's a snowstorm in Texas and suddenly global warming is off the table. Um, and so there are two issues here. One is sort of information and knowledge, uh, how you knowing the system is and how it's working. And the other is, as a politician, if I go in and do something in this area, it doesn't have any tactical benefits for me, so I'm not really interested in it. So you're, you're sort of uh, <laughs> climbing uphill here, right, from a policy perspective. Yes, and it it does go against the what we know about most political change is that it's all about you know what what can be done in the one or two year time frame, while the politician you know has an opportunity to be there, um, or trying to get reelected in some cases, um, and that runs against a lot of the the needed kind of long term perspectives and commitments real commitments of government agencies to do this. Um, I would argue that you can find examples where government agencies are committed to other things and they've maintained those commitments over the long term because of, of you know, perhaps some personal gain that may be connected with that. Um, so it can be done. It just has to be done in a way that um, is bringing those benefits to the forefront and spreading them out more. <laughs> so, so I want to go into your 2019 paper towards more effective integration of tropical forest restoration and conservation. Uh, you say here conservation restoration interventions can be mutually reinforcing and are converging through an increased focus on social dimensions. This paper examines how more effectively integrate the complementary goals conservation, restoration, forest. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about this, um, sort of the complementary goals of these two activities. Um, before we get into the details of this, Bobby, I think, what exactly is a forest? Do we have a first definition? Yes, that you'd think that would be a simple question, but <laughs> it, it isn't, um, because there are many different uh, conceptions of forest, and there are legal definitions that are different and diff uh, across different um, entities and agencies. So, um, yeah, we delved into this with a with a study group, a working group, years ago, um, when we realized that the community of people that were talking about forest transition and about societies where. Um, deforestation rates that were historically happening became reversed and net forest gain began happening. Um, and that community that was looking at and, and also showing where this is happening in our current day as well as historically, we're not paying any attention to what that forest gain was. And it's actually better termed tree cover gain. Um, because it is trees, yes, and trees are growing, yes, but they, in many cases, it it's a monoculture plantation of a tree that doesn't even live in that region, um, and the 
properties of those kinds of ecosystems are vastly different from what a native, the native vegetation that perhaps that area replaced um, historically. Uh, so from, from the biodiversity perspective, from the perspective of water use, um, those are two main things, but also the local uses of the forest. Uh, it's a very different, it means a very different thing. Um, so we were pushing people to use the term tree cover gain instead of forest gain in those, and that's that started to happen. Um, there's also um, legal definitions that have to do with um, like the Kyoto Protocol years ago um, had definitions of what could be legally called a forest. The um, UN Food and Agriculture Organization also has definitions of forest that are very important for their um, forest reporting system that uh, uses country, where countries report how much forest cover they have and what kind of forest cover that is. So they have to all conform to, they have to harmonize in a way that definition. Um, so they went to the least, you know, the, the lowest common denominator to get that definition. And it also can include um, plantations or anything that has trees above a certain height, it's above a certain area, it's a forest. So there, I mean, there are definitions of convenience. Depends on the area and climate. Yes, so there are these strict definitions um, and then countries could have their own definitions as well of what the percent cover qualification would be. And it's sort of whatever suits the the group uh, their convenience, they will adopt that definition. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, just a lot of implications for soil evolution. So, I'm just thinking that, so generally speaking, it's a concentration of trees in a lake, and uh, depending on the area and the climate, you may have some some metric around. A concentration of trees of certain height, and uh, I'm just making this up. I don't know. And then you say, suppose I go back 20, 30, 40 years. I want to see how that changed, right? So that is that is sort of what we mean by deforestation, right? Um, so so what does what does the data what does the data say uh, for the whole world uh, in terms of you know suppose we have sort of a generalized definition of forest. What does David tell us how deforestation has been happening and how it's increasing? Yes, we are still seeing um, fairly extensive deforestation, but across the world. But it's mostly concentrated now in the tropics. There's there is also deforestation happening in temperate and boreal regions uh, due to logging and also due to fires, as we've heard about a lot of the fires and happening now in Chile, but in Canada, in Siberia, um, and in California, yeah, all over, <laughs> right. So that that is deforestation as well. I mean, there may be a few trees left standing, but it's it really pretty much wipes the trees out, um, the large-scale fires do. So um, there's been a lot of effort to kind of track what's going on with that through satellite imagery largely. And uh, we understand there's still a lot of forest loss going on, um, but there's also been a lot of new, a lot of this tree cover gain that we're seeing. Um, some of it is natural forest coming back, some of, but um, and quite a bit of it is plantation, and a lot of those plantations are are being planted uh, for commercial or industrial type plantations, not not really with a restoration uh, motivation. Um, there are some, but the when you look at how that balances out global, we don't have a good global figure for that, for one, but it's mostly commercial industrial. Um, and those will eventually be harvested too. That's not necessarily gonna be a forest again in 60, 80 years, whenever that rotation. Some of these are short rotation. So we're talking about six or eight years, and then they're uh, gone. So that's not long-term uh, from the point of view of carbon storage either. Um, 
so one one wonders what is you know that really mean in terms of uh, climate mitigation um, or climate adaptation as well, uh, and the those the properties of those forests are very different from the forests that were there before. So that is really important to to keep in mind um, that just because we're seeing forest gain doesn't mean we we've solved the problem. It's so, um, I don't know, I couldn't quite understand. So the, the, the tree gain, what do you think? Um, it's sort of, when you look from above, it's a, the color that you can see on the land. Uh, what is yeah, the it's mostly measured by spectral bands that are picked yeah. up by, by satellites. Um, and we're getting better and better at doing this all the time. So um, the higher resolution satellites that are out there and also other technologies such as LIDAR can give you a much clearer picture of what that vegetation actually is, um, which is are really important tools. Um, so we can get a more refined understanding of, of this. And in fact, this is a very active uh, research area right now, um, trying to map you know, where where are forests recovering naturally versus where are they being planted? And what are the features of those forests and how well will they be able to, number one, combat climate change and number two, protect biodiversity. Those are sort of two huge crises that we're facing. Mm -hmm. um, and there are, third, there are third aspects too, which is how are these affecting the local community um, that um, in, in many countries around the world, there's a very high dependency of, of local communities on, on the forests that they live near. And they use those forests for a lot of the products that they need every day. So, yeah, so th th right. those those features matter also. Yeah, so biodiversity is, is, uh, is clear. You have another paper here, mapping carbon accumulation tension for global national forest um, so you say here to constrain global warming, we must strongly contain greenhouse gas emissions and capture excess atmospheric carbon dioxide. natural forests is a problem strategy for capturing additional carbon, but uh, accurate assessment of its potential limited by uncertainty in the regulation planes. So obviously, you know there is some uh, debate about. How much carbon uh, needs to be taken out for the state get in the state stay? Uh, you know, trees do that. You know, trees do take carbon. Uh, but this is a sort of a technical issue, right? So carbon accumulation tension. Um, and, and I know that you have you and your colleagues in, in Australia and elsewhere have done a lot of modeling So so what does our data tell us? in terms of the potential that reforestation, uh, reforestation for carbon. Well, again, you need to make certain assumptions to be yeah. able to answer that, because if we're using um, data from past studies, then we need to know, does that apply to current? Um, so it's tricky. Um, but we have a lot of studies that have measured um, and done ground-based measurements of um, tree growth and tree survival and stand level changes. And so they've been able to assess the total carbon that at least above ground is being stored over time. Um, and then that information could be used to predict for that particular climate um, maybe for that particular age of forest, um, what other what could happen in other sites? So we've been doing this. Um, we did this with secondary forests, which are forests that we re recovered on their own um, throughout Latin America, through based on studies in forty or fifty different regions. Um, and then we projected um, how much carbon forests could store over the next 40 years if 
existing young forests were just let alone and just allowed to grow up, right? Um, so again, the assumption there was, you know, they're they're being protected or not being harvested. And the other assumptions is that they're using the rates of growth that we've determined for other sites, which um, you know may not correspond to the full range that we'll see out there. Um, and at that study found that within Latin within the Latin American tropical zone, um, I think we, that this regrowth would be something like eight. 0.5 petagrams of, of CO2, whatever it, it turned out to be a, a fairly high number, you know, which comes without planting a single tree, you know, um, just letting forests regrow. And there's now been a global study that, that has done this, not so much only for the forest regrowth, but also for recovery of a degraded forest where there's been logging or other kinds of damage. Um, and looking in uh, only looking in areas where there's still, you know, uh, pretty good forest cover, but where there's likely to be good forest recovery. And that that study came out in Nature uh, about a month, maybe two months ago, or maybe it was in November. A very nice study because they found that, again, without even having to plant trees, there's a huge potential globally for carbon storage. Um, and then we could add on to that by planting trees in in other areas where that made sense, um, but that we don't need to always follow the tree planting um, imperative that seems to be out there in order to see these positive effects. It does take time, though. I mean, forests don't regrow instantly; they take you know decades um, to reach sort of their full recovery probably seven or eight decades for from the point of view of carbon store immediate carbon storage um so it um you know it's not something that we're going to be able to do overnight yeah. but it's a long, again one of these long-term uh, commitments that we need to make yeah so, so you mentioned sort of young forests so i was wondering robin that from a carbon uh, uh accumulation potential perspective um, are older trees better or are growing trees better? I mean, I, I know nothing about this, I just want. I mean, are the native trees better than? No, so sort of, you know, young forest, meaning, you know, there are a lot of young trees there, they're growing. Uh, I'm just sort of proxying back to humans, say, you know, sometimes the kids eat, kids need a lot more food than older people. I, I hardly need one meal anymore. So uh, is there a difference? Do, do we see a difference there between sort of older forests and younger forests? Yes. Um, we've been studying this quite a bit um, for many years, um, not only in Costa Rica, but other parts of the world. And you do get a different set of species that are more dominating in a young forest, like a forest of 15, 20, 30 years compared to a, a mature forest that's hundreds of years old. Um, we are finding though, that a lot of the trees that you that are found in old forests are perfectly happy in younger forests. Um, it's a matter of them getting dispersed and um, that is a matter of keeping the fauna intact. So where you have um, a good healthy dispersal fauna, birds and bats largely, but also some mammals that are doing this. These things co are coming up in, in younger forests, but they're small trees and they're, they, they're slow growing. So they're not going to reach the canopy for many years, assuming, and they have pretty good survival that we've been tracking. Um, so it's again, a, a long-term change that's going on. The canopy has to open up for them to really to make a space for them uh, while they kind of grow very, very slowly in the understory. And yeah. there, you know, we've also there also could be some um, silvicultural types of interventions that you could do to um, enhance the growth of certain tree species and, and kind of to speed up the process a bit. 
Uh, but it's still going to take a time, take time for them to become big trees. Yeah, as I say, it's a it's a complex um, lot of factors, a lot of variables. Um, there's sort of a net um, energy coming into the system. So the, the question is, how how do the the trees could use use make use of it uh, the energy coming in, and um, it's going to be different in different climates and different uh, different arenas. So you have another paper here, fostering natural forest regeneration on former agricultural land through economic and policy intervention. So um, agriculture is is quite interesting now. I mean, we have heavy automation going on, as you know, in agriculture, and we could through genetic uh, means and other ways make uh, plants more uh, more productive. And so presumably, we don't need to have a large land mass anymore for agriculture. I'm just speculating here. Uh, if that's the case, then um, there, there are implications for policy there, right? So, so what, are, what are your thoughts here? Well, there is, um, there is the potential to, um, I'm trying to think of the word, um, intensify agriculture. Um, in areas where the conditions are good, um, and then that could, in theory, that frees up or that could liberate some other areas where um, agriculture has a marginal potential to be restored back into a native ecosystem. Um, I think that that's happened in a lot of uh, parts of the world already. When you compare um, lowlands and mountain areas, the lowlands have become very intensified uh, with agriculture, whereas you, you're, we're seeing forest land abandonment and forest regrowth in the mountains, in the Andes, for example. This has been noted um, in observations um, for some time. So... Um, some of that is also accompanied by urbanization, uh, migration of smallholders from these areas uh, where agriculture is not very productive or not providing adequate income. They will leave the area and go to cities or some area where they can find a job, maybe migrating to another country, in fact. Mm -hmm. So sometimes there are there are lots of um, knockdown effects of this abandonment um that are that need to be taken into account um and, but if if there there are what we were trying to think about in that paper was also not necessarily coupling uh forest regrowth with migration out um how could we um improve the conditions within this area so that farmers could make a good living and stay on their farms, and we could enrich those farms with trees, you know, and and where it's possible, um, especially in riparian uh, along rivers, um, where we could stable our steep slopes, where we would help stabilize soil, and then intensify the agriculture through agroforestry, multiple products where they um, where the conditions are better. Um, not thinking so much about mechanized uh, intensification, but eco more ecological intensification, and making that make you know, and improving the markets and uh, transport, improving the the um, all the things that are needed to improve um, the the market chains uh, for the farmer. So it doesn't. We shouldn't necessarily embrace the model that farmers need to leave. <laughs> um, that's not necessarily where we what we want to do, um, but making the life, making the land use more appropriate for farmers while enriching the tree cover could be a better solution. Yeah, so my bias is, you know, that global optimization is going to be global. <laughs> uh, if you if you have sort of a United Nations type entity, and this makes sense. You say, you know, here's objective function. If, if we have you know, some sort of movement from X to Y, then X need to be compensated for that. So it is, it is some, sort of an economic optimization problem. And local optimization, by definition, is going to be suboptimal. 
right? So yeah, do you think you'll ever get there in, you know, uh, some sort of United Nations type entity? Well, yeah, I don't know if it'll be the UN that's that's leading that, but I do think a lot of countries are pursuing policies to incentivize um, their populations to um, change their change certain practices, and a lot of that could be coupled with carbon offsets, um, with uh, offsets for watershed protection. I mean, we need water as well. That's a really important issue that's connected with forests. And, you know, if these resources were actually given the prominence that they deserve on the global stage and uh, farmers were compensated for their production, um, we would be much more in line with a stable economy and stable ecosystems. So this is part of the thinking that I was talking about at the very beginning, the long-term thinking about sustaining, um, not just sustaining corporate profits, thinking about sustaining life in these ecosystems um, while improving them is a much better long-term solution than trying to relocate half the world's population. Yeah, because of uh, climate change, uh, which most people haven't internalized yet. Um, yes, and there are climate change refugees. It's a, it's a huge problem, and it's all connected with political marginalization as well and political violence, too. Yeah, I know that you have done work all around the world, uh, Philippines, Costa Rica, uh, Mexico, and others. Um, Bangladesh, for example, is expected to be half the country is going to be on the water. They say in, um, in 20, 25 years. Um, so the human cost of what we're going to see, um, clearly, as, as we mentioned before, politicians are just trying to get reelected. They have really no interest in many of us. So there has to be some sort of a global entity. Uh, this is as bad as, I would say, uh, a war, uh, a, a global war. I mean, we are actually in a global war, but not many people see it. And it's going to differentially spread all around the world. And, uh, and so I feel like you need some sort of a global entity, you know, sort of making policy. Politicians, local politicians never believe it. Yeah, well, as I agree that we do need global scale efforts, um, but they need to have real um, teeth in them. Like right now, they, they don't. It's just all still all voluntary. And if, you know, countries agree to do it and then they, oh, well, sorry, we didn't quite reach that goal. There's no consequences for them. So, yeah, how do you enforce that? And those are really difficult issues. And I, I'm probably not the best expert to propose solutions there, but I do agree that um, they're global. These are global scale problems now. Even what happens locally ends up becoming a global scale issue, and they need to be addressed at that level. Um, and we need to get countries to abide by this, by them. And that that's where experts, other than me, need to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, enforcement. So, yeah, you know, the 200 countries that we have, so suppose, you, you know, even if you put together a global entity, uh, there are local needs and local requirements, elections and all sorts of things going on there in every country that you can, you cannot really get enforcement at that stage. That's true. That's true. And I still think um, we can't, um, ignore the power of local people to to do things. I think we need to think about it. While we're trying to work at this global level, you know, the wheels turn very slowly. And I think we we can't wait. We need to enable and empower local local communities and local jurisdictions to start taking action. Um, that's those tend to be the most beneficial approaches because it's people knowing what they need and want in charge of the decisions and better decisions get made um, that that have longer term outcomes. Uh, we've seen this over and over again. So I at the same time, I agree we need global bodies to 
muster all the all the strength they, and power that they can. I think we must also get countries to recognize the needs of local people and their self-determination and to support these efforts as much as they can. Yeah, so, so let me finish up with your recent paper from last year, which is sort of related to what you're talking about, beyond ecology, ecosystem restoration as a process for social ecological transformation. So uh, we, we sort of talked about this. So the transformation is not just a technical process. Uh, it involves people, it has winners and losers in there, it has politicians, as we talked about. This is really a social, ecological transformation. Um, my hope has always been that the younger generation will see this in a in a better light and they will rise up to, to solve this problem, but that could just be a dream. Uh, I'm not exactly sure that's going to happen. Yeah, what we're what we tried to present in that paper was kind of a systems approach. Um, and once you kind of get that, once you begin to realize that you don't get the environmental actions without benefits for people, and you need to build that in, you need to sort of reconstruct both the social benefits, uh, the systems, the markets, as well as, and tie that in with the improved environment, then you start to get what we call a, a virtuous cycle, where the cycle feeds, you get these dependencies and it feeds on itself and it just gets better and better um, instead of what we have now, which is worse and worse. Um, and how do you then, how do you flip our current cycles into into a more virtuous cycle. And it really does require this more holistic approach where you're you're building one component that will improve another component. And you know, that requires systemic change. Um, and it requires, you know, some people not getting as many goodies as they're getting now. <laughs> um, so it's it's hard. Um, but I think we need to recognize that if we're going to get have these changes happen, this is the kind of change we need. And, um, you know, we have to make sure everyone gets what they need and that the earth gets what it needs, too. Yeah, like you're saying here, sort of a systems approach to it. So integrate social, economic and ecological dimensions. Um, unless we do that in a sort of a holistic way, we cannot really get uh, Systematic change. And we also talk about here the concerned targets. We talked about this So there are always competing objectives here. And, and because these gains are long term and they're societal gains, not private gains, um, it, it's really difficult to implement policy. Yeah, but I do think. Um... A lot of corporations um, and corporate leaders are coming to this realization. Um, they're beginning to make some changes. It's a slow process and it may appear to be not enough right now, but I think we need to work with that um, and and move from symbolic gestures to you know really more concrete um, actions. And I do think that they will begin to see a virtuous cycle too. They will begin to see if they can market that the consumers are going to respond, that they want to support and buy products from companies that are doing things well and doing and not uh, destroying forests and to make their product or using less carbon in their production chain and, you know, really doing uh, doing making efforts to reduce their carbon emissions and not just paying money to offset it, which isn't really working well. Anyway, um, so this this has a positive feedback cycle. So we need to work more on that, getting those positive feedbacks so that it does create more of a motivation to continue or to enhance these efforts. And I and I do think, you know, there's a lot of smart people in the world. We could we can figure out what kinds of things are needed and and um make a convincing case, make a business case for this. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the issue with this is that it's a long-term effect. It's highly non-linear. And so tactically, it's not something that the general public can tell. Um, so that's where the policy is <laughs> yeah. yeah. True. Um, and I think that it, the the uh, the cost of not taking these actions is going to create an even deeper problem for these companies. And again, maybe they won't have to worry about it because they'll be dead and it'll be the next generation that's dealing with this. But, you know, if that's the kind of legacy they want to leave, that's that's really sad. So I think we need to we need to you know really think about the legacy issues and make arguments to companies that you know um, that the young people in the world are demanding already. Um, this is serious. This isn't just uh, you know kids wanting to unleash energy on the street. <laughs> they there's real these are real problems and they're not going to go away. And if if they're not solved. You know, in the next few years, this is going to really become much more unsolvable in the future without, you know, very unpleasant actions that are going to have to be taken. Yeah, I mean, we have a governor in the, in the southern part of the country who was battling ESG with all his might, uh, with no understanding uh, of, of this problem, right? So, we, I don't believe we can rely on politicians in any in any fashion. Well, yeah, I know there's there's still a lot of denial going on, and <laughs> um, I don't have the answer to how to convince people who are already so convinced they're right and we're wrong, um, except to you know make make the best scientific arguments we can, and to make it personal to you know, show how, th how they could benefit from this. Um, but if someone's not going to be open to listening to you, then you might as well not waste <laughs> your time. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So yeah, thanks for coming on the show and spending time with me. You're welcome. Thank you.